Please note, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are advised that this podcast may reference and include audio of people who are deceased. to Podsploitation, the Oddsploitation podcast. So this month we are checking out 1985's Frog Dreaming, also known as The Quest. And, and the Go Kids. And The Legend of the Dark Lake. Mm-hmm. And The Spirit Chasers. That's it. Wow. Maybe that's the reason why the actual take-up budget was so bad, because we only looked at the budget back for one film. <laughs> but the box office actually was spread about five different films. Well, speaking of the budget, everywhere it's listed that the budget is... $388,000. That's listed on a heap of databases and pages. Mm-hmm. But there's also discussion it was more like $3.8 million because people are pretty sure it was between... Oh, it was a translation error with yeah. uh, zeros. Yeah, yeah, it was a dot in the wrong spot. Oh. But even in the uh, audio commentary on the Umbrella Blu-ray, he says something about being closer to four and a half to five million. Oh, yeah, I remember that part. And the interns are here. And the kittens, who have been lovely and quiet until exactly now, now must chase a ping pong ball up the wooden hallway. The one cat toy that's not silent. Really? All right. (laughs) Fucking hell. Kittens, you kept me up all night. Do you think there is a podcast that is just half an hour of a cat purring every week? Is there? Yeah, there is. Yeah. (laughs) What I was going to say is we kind of slammed on Umbrella a few weeks ago for releasing, well, I'm not even going to say releasing Midnight Spares. That wasn't them. Oh, that wasn't them. Plug. Plug. Sorry. My apologies. Plug. And it wasn't the other week. Yeah. Crapping out Plug. (laughs) Callum's tired. And I'm sorry, but massive love to Umbrella. And honestly, as I think I said at the time, more effort than Plug deserved anyway. But the, oh, yeah, the, the, the release was terrible. The, release like, the was crap. video looked rubbish. To get to the trailer, you had to sit the whole way through the film. Yeah. I like, would not be surprised if the thinking behind releasing Plug was basically... Sure yeah, because people would have been saying, there's this movie from 1931, whatever it was from, it's Plug, it's one of the exploitations, when are you going to release it, when are you going to release it, when are you going to release it? <clears throat> there you go. Yeah, somebody, somebody says... And then they watch it. Oh, God, is that what that was? Yeah. I'd forgotten. So somebody went at like 4.30 Friday afternoon. Oh, shit, I was going to raise plug this weekend, wasn't I? All right, DVD burner, get the 88. All right, that's fine. Excellent, good. Oh, God, there's a trailer too, isn't there? Fine, look it up. Okay, we'll add that to the end. (laughs) Bang. Yeah. So, yes. Done and poets. So while we bagged Umbrella for the release, at the same time we genuinely feel that you put a hero's level of effort into it, this Blu-ray release of Frog Dreaming so is good. really good. Full of features, really impressive, and... Do we know when the audio commentary was recorded? Uh, it was recorded for the Blu-ray because they mentioned Blu-ray specifically at some point. So oh, it must have been really recently. Then. That would have been probably last year, so maybe the year before. And so 2017-18. Yeah, so 2018-17 now. In the 
lead up to this, I was listening to an interview of Brian Trenchard Smith from 2016, in which he said the Blu-ray was being worked on, mm-hmm. uh, but it sounded like it's in pre-production stages then, so I'd say looking at 2017, 2018 for that one. Cool. I, oh God. I know Blu-ray is always really good quality, but geez, this film looked good. Yeah. You know, 1985, you don't necessarily expect it to transfer all that well. Look great. Because we're currently in the middle of a massive heatwave in Australia, we got <clears throat> climate change. Um, <laughs> we actually are recording in the lounge room rather than the library, which is a bit more soundproof. Oh, God, we sound rich. We're not recording Let in the library rephrase. today. Okay, all right. Let me rephrase. Because we're not recording in the spare bedroom I have my books in, <laughs> because it's a little bit more soundproof, we're actually recording in the lounge room that has the only air conditioner in the whole house. Do I sound a little more poor now? Is that a bit better? Well, just not as rich. As not as rich. All right. Yes, yes. So We're in the parlor. We're actually recording. <laughs> yes, yes. Couldn't get to the conservatory. No, unfortunately, the orchids are being looked at. So we're recording in a different room which has an air conditioner in it. Uh, and what that means is we actually have the television that we watch these movies on in the background. And I've got a freeze frame up at the moment, and the quality is really good. It's a big old classic kind of 2001 A Space Odyssey monolith on its side, as all televisions are these days. And considering the film was made in 1985, really, really good. Really awesome quality this got 6.2 on IMDb. It didn't seem to have much on Rotten Tomatoes' page. Hmm. I was just going to add on the Blu-ray package, apart from being very nice umbrellas, but I think you also get good behind the scenes when you've got Brian Trenchard-Smith on board. He seems to do – you get good BTS from BTS. Yeah. Well, he well I hope he was the one it. who yawned during the recording. <laughs> BTS from BTS. Sorry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take half a second. That's really awesome. Behind <laughs> the scenes from Brian Trenchard-Smith. That's genius. Well done, yes. Sorry. Agreed. I think that deserved. I'm going to give that the respect it deserved. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, and I think one of those things which I've actually asked about in the past when we watch something like Plug, which is that the BTS is generally tends to be really passionate about his productions, even when it's not necessarily one that he was coming out of the gate with, because we'll get into this one. He wasn't actually the first choice for director for this film. But he talks about this one really fondly. He says it's one of his favourite movies and he actually says in the director's commentary that it was the first time he'd seen the movie in a long long time and he got to sit down and watch it so yeah it's nice to hear a bit of passion and a little bit of excitement from someone does anyone want to do a trailer okay (laughs) umbrella entertainment who are they are they yeah they're new are they in E.T. Now Henry Thomas is back as Cody Walpole. There's no break! There's no break! Cody is an adventurer about to discover the secret of frog dreaming. Cousin, what do you know about a pond five miles east of Devil's Mouth? Well, I want you to promise me you'll stay away from that pond. <sighs> Do you believe in monsters? Some for 20 years. I was married to one. Wow. Oh, Jesus. Cody, just hang on. This is going too far. That finger bit about to meet deep if there's one of it all. Ah, uh, yes. We turned all torches on back then by twisting them, didn't we? Apparently. I remember buttons on mine. 
Henry Thomas from E.T. is Cody Walpole, whose search for adventure takes you to the depths of a legend. So the like... legend of I was going to say, so we've dropped E.T. twice in there, so we're obviously going uh, uh, Only once classic. if you can't hear. The <laughs> subtitles, the first, it didn't say E.T., it was written 80. Oh, really? Oh, and I don't so E.T. The... was said slower the second oh, time, so the auto-read script, I guess, picked it up that time. The auto-subtitles. I would be curious to see if the trailer that was played in America, if indeed there was, there would have been one, wouldn't there? For the quest? Mm. Is different. Yeah, so there we go, Frog Dreaming. Surprisingly vague. Not very much of anything random events, not in necessarily the trailer, tied together. Do you mean? Yeah, what do you know about a pond? That was sort of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, which is 90% of his ambitions through the movie to find oh. out what's in the pond. Yeah. So we open with someone in their shed doing some welding and... Ah, Yes, Kelly. There's even something coming on that because in the commentary, the director actually says that he likes to do a character reveal, a hero reveal of the main character. Brian Trenchard-Smith says he likes the presentation shot. It's something I'd have to pay attention to going forward. I hadn't sort of Oh, I see, yeah. That a particular way of revealing the hero character in a way that's a bit different. So, you know, here's a picture of someone welding... Boosh, it's a small child. What do you know? Boosh so, means takes off the welding mask if anyone couldn't see that from home. Everyone knows Boosh means take off the welding mask. The mighty take off the welding mask. Everybody knows that. It completely slipped my mind. I, I forgot. <laughs> You're right. Well, it's because Boosh is French for mouse and you have your mouth behind the welding mask when it's removed. It's, it's I mean, obviously, your eyes, they're, they're just elsewhere, but no. your mouth is definitely behind the welding mask. Your nose and cheeks and, and forehead as well. That's all secondary. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so the presentation shot revealing Henry Thomas as this... Child inventor. Mm-hmm. So this one, I've got a history on this one. So my brother and I have watched this a few times. So my brother and I watched this a fair bit as kids. We saw it a, a few times. <laughs> so, Callum, I understand you and your brother saw this a few times. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so we watched this a few times as kids. And this is that kind of classic 80s kids movie it hits a lot of the tropes, not just with Aussie cinema, but with cinema in general, like Goonies and so on. Adults are largely absent or wildly irresponsible. I really like the adults in this because they listen to the kids. I that like happens them. happens very little in films. I like them after the entire town is betting on whether a small child will die or not. Are they betting? There was actual... They were betting if he'd make the time, not if he'd make it with his uh, life. Uh, <laughs> oh, you mean at the start? Yes. Yeah, that's not... Oh, right. I thought you were... Um, yes. See, listen, there... at the start, Cody's built himself this little train bike vehicle to see if he can get from one part of the town to another in under three minutes. It converts and... his bicycle to run on the railway tracks. School is three miles away. And he's trying to make that three miles in three minutes. There we go. And this is something he's done many times because everyone in the town knows when he's going to try and... How do they know? He's not carrying anything telltale. Well, he just sort of rocks up, walks through the middle of town with his bike and everyone's like, oh, he's going to go for it. And of course... Yes, but how did they know? (laughs) Well, I just... Because they've seen it so many... As Dari says, they've obviously they've seen it a few times now. He's going to go for it again. Okay. Which is, for me, I don't know about you, but it really sung Last Starfighter. 
that absolutely hit those same beats as Alex is going for the record. The whole community, in this case the community being an entire town and Last Starfighter, it's just the trailer park. But it's like this is a thing. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, you need to watch The Last Starfighter. So in Last Starfighter, uh, there's a character, Alex Rogan, who plays a video game that's at the local just the shop at the very top of the trailer park. And every time okay. he plays, he gets a slightly higher score. Right. And the record has been the standing thing on the video game. And then what happens is one one evening he's angry playing it because shit's gone down as it does in movies. And the word ripples through the trailer park that he's about to break the record so that all of the trailer park comes together. It was kind of... And then um, the kill screen happens. Good reference. Good reference. I was trying to think of a smart-ass comment, but I'm not going <laughs> And this whole thing about how there's this one kid, the whole town has got, they know him so well that there is a thing he's going to have a crack at again, it really was almost identical in my head to Last Half Idol. Dara, had you seen this as a child? No, as it happens, at least not that I remember. Yeah, all right. What did you think? Did it hold up? Or did, well, or did you enjoy it? Right. Well, I enjoyed it, yeah. You did? Okay, cool. Because one thing that I, I kind of noticed, especially during the first third of the movie, was that, okay, so we've talked about the fact that the director came in a little late. After a few weeks of original production, they recognised that the original director... Wasn't well, landing it. Yeah. Uh, wasn't wasn't landing it. It wasn't working. And one of the things that was commented on a couple of times in the... I know I'm going to keep coming back to the director's commentary, but it is actually relatively informative. It's a bit dry, but it is relatively it's informative okay, about the all. production of the movie. That they weren't getting much energy out of the kids... And the start of the film, I kind of saw that. It seemed very... In particular, Henry Thomas seemed really self-conscious. It was weird. They I was only used this. three or four minutes of the original which is they had. What's really strange weeks. to me, because he... Deli- I'm not going to say he mumbles his lines, and it may be the character, but it just it seemed very halting. It, I mean, I got into it as the film went on. But I was like, God, I can't believe this is the same character as E.T. And I actually watched a few sequences from E.T. during kind of small Actor, parts. not character. Okay, go on. Actor, rather, sorry. And I'm like, okay, no, there's something about his performance in E.T. that is really full on. But that's a very emotive performance. Almost all of the film is emotional right from, mm-hmm. you know, right after the start. But, yeah, it took me a little while to get into it. But then again, I don't know if that's just because I'm a grown-up now and I was a kid back then and I was more ready to associate with But you enjoyed it and didn't? feel there was any problem with the acting or anything? I'm not going to say the acting was spotless all the way through, mm. but I didn't go, what the hell, all these people are awful. And oh, okay, just, cool. Yeah. And they, I always have a low bar for child acting. Well, this is the I thought for Tams and West. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, Jane. I'll make chicken sandwiches. And I'll get some cigarettes. Oh, I have a whole thing written down about Jane. <laughs> the younger bratty sister, which, nice... In a, yet another weird movie from that same era, there's a movie called Iron Eagle where there's a younger son to the hero who actually goes off and saves his dad by stealing an F-16 from an Air Force oh, base. Oh, that one, yes. And I would suggest that he's the kind of the male... Well, Cody in this is 14. Analogue for he's, he's older in that, isn't he? Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, Cody... Cody's 14. Cody's 14. So Tamsin, I guess, is meant to be... 10. Um, le- 10? Okay. Reading the Perfume Garden. Good for her. We'll get back to that because I have a whole thing. Oh, excellent. But, yeah, that kind of, not bratty younger sibling, but sort of... She's possessed by the devil. Stuff. Oh, she, is, <laughs> she is waiting for true crime podcasts to be a thing so she can just <laughs> butt stuff from them into regular conversation. 
so we have Cody Walpole. He does his attempt. Yeah, he does make it to school in the three minutes, which we did some maths. So three miles in three minutes is a mile a minute. That's really 60 miles an hour. Wow. That's 60, 60 miles, miles in 60 minutes. Sorry. So um, for three miles in three minutes, he has to be doing over 96 kilometers per hour on those train tracks on that not overly solid looking contraption. <laughs> We did some checking. Apparently, the kind of like a really high speed on a bike is 80 miles per hour. Oh, that's a really high speed. Yeah, on a that's bike. a crazy high speed. I mean, you worked out that what the average on the Tour de France is. Like 25, but a sprint would be but, 60. But we recognize that a Tour de France is up and down hills. So yeah. 60 miles per this hour is, is kind of like. Sprint. Yeah, yeah. So, really, what he needs is a motorcycle. Yes, an engine, which he says later yes, on in the actual right. film. He's like, if I just strapped an engine to it, it's like, you think. Um, so, people see. Cody going down the street with his bike. The entire town's like, oh, he's going to give it a go. Go down to the tracks to watch him do this. Someone calls the police station. The cop heads over to the destination. Cody's trying to pull off in front of the school. Brakes fail. And then he mac and me's down the hill. Yeah, which is mostly done by the stunt double. Though Henry did KO himself for like 15 minutes. Yeah. Hitting his head on a rock or something, on the rock or the rail. Which is pretty full on. If ever you, you want to have a bit of a laugh, I think there's a few compilations online. Every time Paul Rudd gets invited to Conan O'Brien's show to plug his new movie, they cut to the footage of the latest film, whether it's Ant-Man or any kind of movie. Mm. He plays the same sequence from a film called Mac and Me, which has got a kid <laughs> in a wheelchair going down a hill and then falling into a lake. And he actually did it with the latest Avengers movie as well. He keeps adding it every single time. And it's weirdly shot for shot, that bizarre back and forth between long shot stunt double on the hill and then the immediate close-up of the character from the kind of low wide angle. BTS actually mentions that he really likes that low wide angle, which is such an evocative camera shot from the 1980s in particular. Yeah, it's really weird. So Mac and Me, it's a terrible film. It's the first in the most recent season of Mystery Science Theater 3000. <gasps> they did Mac and Me. Yeah. Again, another project I funded and never ended up actually getting the films for. Because, yes. Because our AI changed. Damn. Okay. And I paid the $40 to get my email for another year and you didn't. I didn't. I'm a terrible <laughs> person. I was going to say, regarding Henry's little bike train contraption, I just know that had I lived near train tracks, kids I know would have been trying to build that. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Because I would have been trying to. Yeah, kids I know, apparently kids we knew back in the day would always try to imitate inventions or bizarre methods of transport from movies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how many kids copped it trying to skateboard along behind cars like in Back to the Future, but <laughs> I know at least one who tried it. Mm-hmm. And you'd also be seeing what you can get squished completely flat on the train tracks. Oh, yeah, little coins or something like that. Or, but, or bigger. Oh, God. Oh, and when he gets busted by the cop, I love everything in the cop speech. Oh, yeah. Young Henry. Yeah. <laughs> the cop is great. Son, every time that brain of yours starts punching out data... Public property is endangered, women cry and dogs bark. What do you do, stay up late at night trying to think up ways to make a peanut of yourself? No. No. He was just trying to get from the station to school in three minutes. Does your father know you're here? And where are they? Where are who? The people from the Guinness Book of Records. There must be some kind of a prize for raging idiocy. He's not an idiot. He's the smartest kid I know. And he was only trying to get to school a bit quicker. A bit quicker, a bit faster, a bit higher, a bit deeper. Where's it all going to end? A bit deader. 
Listen, hotshot, you're going to finish up compost if you don't hang up your sneakers and keep your nose clean. Keep my nose clean? <laughs> Next time you're planning to do something, don't. No more rocket-powered roller skates, no more homemade hand grenades, and no more parachuting off the war memorial. Have you got it? Yeah, I got it. The cop is Sergeant Ricketts, and it's John Hewitt. And he's quite fabulous. Valet John. He was an amazing actor. And, mm. yeah, kind of a stalwart of Australian. He tells Cody he risks getting tended to compost. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see how close he's driving to yeah, that blue hill? right at the front. Oh. I don't even know where to start because there's so much happening in the opening sequence of the film. And it's not because there's so much happening in the actual film <laughs> itself. A kid tries to beat his own record going down a railway track and falls off the end. But if you wanted... I've, I've spoken a few times to people about how... If you really wanted to summarise the 1980s, watch the opening sequence of Back to the Future. And it's incredible to me that they did it at the time because when you're within a particular era, you don't necessarily know what you're going to do. I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast. I know this is a really familiar little thing for me. But, you know, I know that if I had wanted to capture the spirit of the alt, the 2000s, a little while ago, I would have included fidget spinners and bits and pieces. And, of course, that's nothing anymore. Yeah. The opening sequence of Back to the Future does an incredible job of quick-shotting a half a dozen things that are just screaming 1980s when that whole concept was weird. This movie captures, like, every 80s movie I can remember as a kid. The inventions from the Goonies. I mean, inventions and weirdness. The Explorers as well was another movie from that era. Well, Goonies is one of the reasons this was called Go Kids in the UK. Go Kids sounding more like Goonies. That makes perfect sense. It capitalises on that. The inventions of Doc Brown at the very start with, like, the feeding of the dog food. So that mm-hmm. trope. The BMX riding is, is a – I mean, BT, BMX Brian Trenchard Smith was uh, BMX Bandits. But also E.T. I mean, you've got Henry Thomas because of E.T. And one of the most evocative bits I can remember as a kid was what, you know, got me like literally out of the cinema straight on my BMX and cycling was all that running, you know, you you suddenly when you're racing on your BMX bike, you know, you've got a little alien that you have to save. And that whole (laughs) opening sequence with the BMX kids jumping in front of the cars as they go past. Or jumping over the cars. Yeah. Absolutely anchored but in Callum that and I watched this together and wanted to pause it and just go back to being kids and ride around on the streets <laughs> with our BMXs. Yeah, it was just so much easier back then. And yeah, I know. you don't have any responsibility. I don't have to do anything until the streetlights yeah. come on. And a butt made of adamantium, apparently, because I've tried riding a bike as an adult and it hurts. <laughs> I don't know what my nether regions were made of as a kid, but I used to... I lived on my bike. I can remember, I can't, you know, obviously get home from school. I'd come home from school on my my bike yeah dump everything do my best to avoid all the homework jump straight back on the bike ride around to a friend's place ride up and down I, mm, yeah so so you've got that you've got the anchor point in et you've got the goonies as well it really is uh, stranger things has done a really good job in oh, some yes, ways of captu- so capturing a lot of that evocative feeling of being a kid from that era this movie is like Fucking concentrated 80s movies in the opening scene. It's amazing. So, when we've got the whole town that's following Cody down to the railway tracks. All those guardians (laughs) and responsible adults. And the greaser, which is weird. (laughs) Yeah, there's this guy with just a little pencil moustache and a greaser haircut straight out of the 50s, and he's, he's just one of the town. Yep. He's the Fonz dude. And there's a guy that's got a shirt with cut off sleeves. Hmm. That's Patrick Hughes' dad, Tim Hughes, like Patrick Hughes of Expendables 3 and Hitman's Bodyguard. 
That's really? Yeah. That's, yep. Holy shit! <laughs> That's amazing. I'm curious if he's in the credits as like Greaser. I think they've all got names. Yeah, that's Did the I... problem. Well, I think it's one of those things where the names are all in the script and what have you. Oh, yeah, sure. And then they put them in the credits and we're just expected to know them. Mm. Yeah, right. maybe one time in a conversation somebody was calling somebody Frank. <laughs> it's, it's like Ewoks. No one says Ewoks in that movie, but no. true does everyone know what an Ewok is. Oh, that's true. So we didn't indigenous what he... There's racism. I mean, of course there is, because it's... Well, I was going to say Australia in the 80s, but no, it's Australia and we're still racist. But I love the dad giving... Well, Gaza giving Cody advice. It's like... So ask the blacks. Respectfully. <laughs> I'm not sure if okay. you were realising we, that sentence. We had this conversation on the night that when we were watching the movie the first time round. Um, all right. First off, as I, as I, was, I think we've said I before, don't think this is going to come off very well no, as no, a trio no, no, no. of white people, but no. off what, you go. That's what I was going to say. As we've said before, we are all white and we are Australian white people. Um, <laughs> there are absolutely terms which are pejoratives, which are negative. The shortening of the word Aboriginal, which I'm not comfortable saying, is as close as we would get in Australia to a native take on the N-word, yeah. I think. Yeah. It was without a doubt a non-offensive vernacular from the point of view of producers of movies all through the seventies and eighties. The very fact that it's used, in it, absolutely. The very fact that it was used. A B O non-offensive. Yes. yes. Yeah. No. Sorry. What? Not intended to be offensive. It was the word used. It was. And I look. I've had teachers use that word when I was a kid. Yeah, we had shit education. It was so. terrible. It was a recognition. That yeah, I the keep word... forgetting that my education in Indigenous things was actually yeah, halfway no. decent. Well, yeah, I did not know a how appalling it was in all the other schools. Oh, it's oh, awful. Yeah. Australian we... history began in 1788, don't you know? My school. That's not true. The Dutch came first. Yeah. No, we beat the Dutch. It started in 1788. It was a historyless island surrounded by the Dutch before yeah. then. In my primary school, we actually learned quite a lot about various Indigenous cultures and story time was as likely to be a tale from the dreaming as it was some other nursery rhyme. And we yeah. had Indigenous guest speakers and we would learn about the various musics and traditions and things that I did not know at the time how lucky we were to learn all this. 97% yeah. I mean, of the rest of Australia didn't get. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to claim I'm a cultural expert because this is still primary school level stuff, mm. but if no one else is getting even that, then I'm still no. occasionally shocked to this day. I, and your classmates probably didn't say A-B or as an insult. No, that was brought up once in a recall to say that it was a bad thing you shouldn't say. Mm. Yeah. It is a bad word. Like I said, I would say the N-word is the N-word wherever you are in the world. It's awful and terrible and horrible. But, you know, ABO in Australia is absolutely only... It's, it's a cultural equivalent from historical culture of Australia, I would say. I know that the N-word is used, but I think the A-word's way more commonly used in Australia, and I would, I'd put them on a par. Mm-hmm. Now, all of that said, this is a kid's movie. There's no way they were attempting to make any kind of deep conversation about Indigenous history because of the fact of the matter, the painful fact of the matter is that in most cases, mainstream movies in the 1980s didn't do that at all. I mean, God, one of the most sensitive handlings of the issue in Australia is in Crocodile Dundee, for fuck's sake. So, you know, what does that say about what the kind of films we were making in the 1980s? It is used as a word that, well, that that's the word the character had used. That's just 
the way it is. I don't know. I was listening to the director's commentary or the commentary and whoever it was, you know, started off talking with the kids and say, treat the kids with respect like they're one of you or like they're on your level, something like that. But then an hour or so later, he says the exact same thing about relating to the dark people. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. We treated them as equals. Treat so, them oh, as equals. Really? So, good, good for you. Yeah. That, yeah. that said, too, they could have actually did go and talk to Indigenous yes. people about the content the point, of this that's movie. The point of, that oh, was the point yes. I was trying to come around to, is that ask the blackfellas. Blackfella, blackfella and whitefella are terms used in Indigenous circles. They are absolutely terms that I are I usually used. see blackfella with a U, not an E. Really? Yeah. I've okay. seen both, but yeah, you're right. All right. But absolutely. And I've seen and heard that being used in contemporary conversation as a totally non-pejorative identification of, it's a little bit like, I guess, African-American. Were any of those conversations with black people? Yes, 100%. And I know we've talked about this on the podcast before. We negotiate in the conversation about these movies. We are negotiating areas in Australia that are not comfortable to talk about, and they're areas that we still haven't, fixed we still haven't resolved you know you might be proud of living in the country but the country still does terrible things the point i'm trying to make is there are words and choice of language used in this film which are problematic but as with sexual and gender politics that we've looked at already in things like felicity they are a sign of their times and while it's good that we cringe now it's really important to recognize that certainly white fella and its contrast are phrases that are still used today by people who have been accepted into the community and who deal with the community with an understanding that that's not a terrible term. The use of the A word is really horrible. Or we could talk about a kid's film. What? Okay, cool. No, I just, I mean... you. you... Australia was racist, is racist, continues to be racist. Sorry about that. Let's talk about a movie. All right. I'm, okay. It's it's a conversation worth having at some point. I hopefully, like as we've discussed before, hopefully we will hit a point where there may we may even get an indigenous exploitation movie or at least an exploitation movie that handles it. But the point about this movie, and it's something that we can't shy away from because that's kind of the Australian attitude. It's like, oh, you know, it's too complicated. This is a fuck it. The Australian version has half of the title is about indigenous concepts. Dreaming is a religious term. Dreaming is an Aboriginal religious term. And it's a very specific thing, and it's kind of harked on all the way through the films. Now, we went looking for the concept of frog dreaming as a particular thing, and we can't find anything about specifically frog dreaming. But the dreaming is culture. It's the heritage. It's that hot. <laughs> it's the mother. Um, <laughs> you beat me to it. Yeah. It is tied into that. And actually, that was one of the things I wanted to raise, because one of the things I found really galling about this movie yeah. wasn't that it's not handled particularly well, because... Fucking 1980s. But the one who's most educated in it is the ring-in American actor who is teaching the rest of the people in this movie about the bits and pieces. There are a lot of parts where, in general, it does seem that people are kind of looking to the aforementioned ring-in American Cody as a font of knowledge. He knows how to weld. (laughs) He's an inventor. Well, he's the one that actually passes on a lot of the... When Cody speaks, I'll listen. Yeah, and he's the one who actually talks about the Aboriginal dreaming when they're actually first going on their picnic 
into the middle of fucking nowhere. Well, they go to the park. Um, yeah, it's a national park. That's right. Um, but Devil's he's the one who's providing all the teaching. <laughs> Devil's cock. That was so funny. And there's something in that bloody pond. Change language. What were you doing up there? Just exploring. You told me you were going for a picnic in the park. We did. It was the Devil's Cock National Park. No. Yeah, that was not. So, let's go to the pond. <laughs> the opening where we see the bloke who would be the colour of a lobster that's oh, asleep in his tinny, fishing in the pond. The late great Peter Cummings. I assume actually to say that automatically. His skeleton, like his... Well, he's late in the movie. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When we see his skeleton next time we go back to the pond, his mouth is not right, right? Like, I yeah. know he's meant to be a dentist, but he has way more teeth. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's not just me. Because I... Teeth are what makes skulls look scary on film, so you just give them Because I mentioned more. it to Callum, but I guess he hadn't, like, noticed the same thing I was looking at. I mentioned the Goonies before. That is an yeah. absolute Goonies skeleton. Oh. It's a Goonies Indiana Jones classic yeah, skeleton. Yeah, you're so right. So I didn't clock it as anything unusual because that's what that's what <laughs> skeletons look like. That was just if, like a way bigger mouth than a human if person I, usually has, especially a dentist. If I ever encounter a genuine <coughs> human skeleton somewhere in the middle of nowhere and it doesn't have a massive jaw and rags all over it, I'm going to be very disappointed because uh, that's what all my kids' movies told me. Just had a realisation. Yeah. So he, he's the dentist that comes from Sydney and I think he's got he's, so many teeth. I think that he's on the run. He's been stealing teeth. <laughs> That's his getaway, and now he's trying to live off the land and keep a low profile. Well, that was a question I was going to ask: is is that camp by the side of the pond? Is that his camp, or has he kind of come to it? I had the impression he came to it. Okay, like it was I... half set up. All oh, right, because I was wondering there was a rusted-out car that had been there for a long time. But that's the thing. So the big. We won't spoil it just yet, but the big reveal at the end suggests that the thing that's been happening is happening on a semi-regular basis. And therefore, it doesn't make sense to me that he could have built an entire camp from scratch on the side of the pond and then finally only encounter it after all that time. I didn't have the impression that he built it. Okay, cool. All right. I'm happy with that. That makes sense. So we have this bloke in his tinny with a fishing line attached to his finger and he's sort of asleep on the boat, leaning back and waiting to get a bite. And then the fishing line catching between the boat and his hand and he's like really struggling without actually reaching over his other hand to help. Well, and that's a bizarre little reference, oh, not reference, but that's a sequence very similar to one in Jaws, which is the same thing, where they oh, really? try to catch Jaws and the, the line kind of... Oh, yes, of course, course. down on the... Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting the, the opening of this film is a mishmash of intentionally stolen sequences. No, not at all. But it really does most kind of tick box, you know, what are some classic 80s movies you remember, and, oh, yeah, here's this bit and here's this bit. Yeah. I'm going to take two seconds just to say uh, massive apologies to Peter Cummins, uh, as at... Uh, the 21st of November, 22nd of November. 22nd November, 3.24pm. 2019. He's actually still alive. Uh, Peter Cummins is an Australian actor, born in 1931. So, Excellent. Uh, yeah. All right. Apologies for that. Yes, he's a, he's a really good character actor. He's in a, a bunch of... Oh, that's what you meant by boat dude. Yeah, boat dude. Neville. Well, Neville there's two the boat boats, dude. you see. We have a boat later on that the kid's on to go out to find Charlie Pride. Ooh, right. But yes, uh, that boat dude. Yeah, First the boat river dude. boat dude. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, anyway, sorry. Have we actually summarised the plot yet? 
No, we haven't come anywhere near it. No, we never Where do. Where are we, we even at here? We've been talking for so long. No, we have said nothing about this film. They go and they find a pond. <laughs> they go and they find a pond. There's a pond. Okay, right. so Henry Thomas is Cody Walpole. He comes across this billabong. Are you the, calling it Lake? That's actually really interesting. I don't recall anyone saying billabong in this. No. Now, billabong is a term, it's one of those phrases a bit like g'day that people assume Australians don't use, when in actual fact it's a relatively standard word. Yeah. And yeah, but no, it's a pond, and it's pond. the bottom of a quarry, That's right, basically. they keep saying yeah. pond. They say mm. pond. And thinks there's, uh, once you're in it, there's a Aboriginal myth of donkajin. Donkajin. Which is tied into the concept of frog dreaming, and the idea is is that all through that particular area, because this is the other thing, is that the Aboriginal dreaming is very regional-specific based on the tribe that were in the area, that if you encounter one of those, it's an evil, it's a dark place, and it's bad. So that's The Indigenous it. population would walk 50 miles around this place to get past, just yeah. to not go near it, is something that Cody has heard. Yeah, and it's full of evil, terrible horribleness that will happen to you. Okay, oh, so Cody is American. This is set in Australia. It's because Cody is an orphan. Gaza is his carer. Father's best friend. was dad's best friend. They were in Nam together. Yep. Another thing which is mentioned purely is a let's establish the, yeah. the relationship and then drop because kids movie. And Cody is hanging around heaps with sisters Wendy and Jane. So Rachel Friend, who is around Cody's age of 14, and Townsend West is little Jane, who is 10 years old and a fucking psychopath. Yeah. So Rachel, Wendy. And I love her. Oh, yes. Yeah. Rachel. Jane is so charmingly dark. <laughs> As somebody with a younger sibling, yes, she is that annoying fucking... Pain in the ass, younger sibling. <laughs> See if he still likes the show so much after that. I just want to do some breakdown on Jane's stuff. So after Cody falls off the bike, him and the two sisters are talking. They'll do a picnic the next day, go to the park. So big sister saying, and I'll make some sandwiches. Little sister saying, I'll get some cigarettes. Yep, which she does. Which she There's does. kids smoking in this. Yep. Yet another thing which was often used really... I mean, hell, Stand By Me and a whole bunch of other kids' movies at the time would show... Although you can argue whether Stand By Me is actually a kids' movie. Uh, no. She gets in trouble for hanging out at the train tracks because Uncle lost his leg. She's like... Did he get to keep it? Where's What happened to the leg now? She's lying in bed looking increasingly interested in the book she's reading, The Perfumed Garden of Sensual Delight, mm-hmm. which is like an Arabic it's, Kama Sutra. It's not the source of, but yeah, if you imagine it basically being an equivalent to the Kama Sutra, yeah. And she's got wires next to her bed that are labelled. So there's tree toilet seat, fridge, shower, and one or two I couldn't read. And you pull on these strings and they make different noises in different parts of the house purely to make her mum think the house is haunted (laughs) by a poltergeist. She picks up a bunch of fish and says, Yuck, they look like sex. (laughs) She's talking about tadpoles. And to get a distraction for her sister, the 10-year-old goes up to her mum and says, Can you get herpes from French kissing? This 10-year-old is possessed and I love her. (laughs) You did forget the chasing her mother with a chicken leg. That is true. And then she horrifies her mum by sticking like a chicken's foot in her ear. Yeah, she's pretty fucking incredible. (laughs) I love the setup of the wires. 
she's clearly just doing that to fuck with her mum's mm. mum. Yeah, i got to feel a bit sorry for the mum. I think the mum is... Well, she is, seems very simple. She's close to a gaslit Stockholm Syndrome member of the family by that stage. Yeah. Her husband just says, oh, no, that sounds... That's the not that's wind. That's the not wind. Yeah. And sorry. she buys it instantly. I need <laughs> to like, actually... Oh, I need to like when it's not light. You mean yeah. dark? Yes, Karen. Yeah, I need to dial that back because <laughs> I don't want to denigrate the, the very real problem and issue that is with Gaslight. But, yeah, she does almost seem like a fucking prisoner in her own home that both the father and the kids are all treating her as a bit simple. Well, I don't know. Wendy might be okay Yeah, well, maybe he's grown up a little bit. Husband He's not is, great to her at all. Really. No, he's not good. Uh, child is just the devil. Which well, is it? Jane. A shame because one of the things I was going to say is one of the better acting sequences – is when he talks about the not win, the initial, like... It does look good, doesn't bit, it? It looks really good, and he's got a really good delivery. It's just a shame he's being a fucking shit. One of my favourite deliveries in this, and it was like, it was at 30 or 40 minute mm. mark where the kids, oh, we didn't look what happens at the hour, where the kids, huh. uh, the two girls are getting grounded, and Dad says, You know where you two are going to spend the rest of your holidays, don't you? No, where? Exactly. I, I did like that. I really yeah, liked that. That was really good. I couldn't remember that part. I expected him to say something like summer school or... or <laughs> You're going to military school. Yeah, military school. Oh that my was God, the did thing. you hear like, that John Wick theory? That he's the ultimate version of Ted who did get sent to <laughs> That's right, yes. I <laughs> yeah. love that. My goodness, military schools did such a great business in 1980s <laughs> kids' movie like, land. Oh, Red yeah. Dawn. Uh, oh, Red no, Dawn. that was military And Toy school. Soldiers. No, well, actually, no, Toy Soldiers was the military school. Toy Soldiers. It? Yeah, that mm. was one with Will Wheaton Love that movie. going hardcore. But everyone was getting sent there at the drop of a hat. They it's really like, were, yeah. weren't they? Fucking hell. It would have been well, more like Police were. Academy. I think yeah. girls went to Catholic school, didn't they? Or Sniper School. Sniper you know, School? I mean, aren't all girls like snipers in the late 80s, early 90s movies? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, especially the, the rouseabout ones. Rouseabout ones? I don't know what I mean. <laughs> There's a way she played it. That's kind of Katie Manning tongue-in-cheek stage persona. She's obviously building up several years early, because that's how she sort of makes fun of herself now. Oh, yeah. Sitting there, hunched all together with her very large whiskey. (laughs) Yeah, and just sort of taking bizarre concepts on faith. Yeah. (laughs) She sort of over-betrays the idea that she's childish and not very bright, which she is. She just does herself like that when she's doing public appearances. Almost kind of the character she played in Joe Grant, recognising that if you're treated as a bit of a simple reporter, you get much more of a chance to then, you know, cop the big story because, boy, you're just a girl and, and you know... You, uh, Sarah Jane of, was a reporter. Sorry, Sarah Jane was a reporter, wasn't she? Joe Grant was... Joe Grant was a unit operative. Oh, was she? Yeah. Oh. Her uncle pulled strings. Ah. That makes more sense. All right. So the movie... <laughs> <laughs> So, the kids have found the dead dentist. Yeah. And the cop and cops offside go there. But they take the greaser and another guy. Why? I guess that's just that whole, like, the town's police isn't just the police officer. It's kind of all the grown adults. Oh, no. Are they like the, um, oh, what's it called in Hot Fuzz? Neighbourhood White. Neighbourhood White. <laughs> Maybe. I, look, it's, it's possible. I kind of... It's one of those places where you imagine that I think there's literally just a cop or, you know, a cop. Yeah. There's not even a deputy in this one, is there? Oh, it's another cop. Oh, there is another cop. No. Oh, yes. When they go... Because he's limping at the start. Yeah, he's crutch. got a... Yeah. But then he's not later on. But then I couldn't find any reference to whether that was meant to be a particular thing. Well, or I just genuinely wonder. But no, but I wonder if just... Well, okay. 
that's very much a you're not going to show somebody limping unless you're going to make yeah, yeah, a point yeah. of it. So There's no Chekhov's gum here. Yeah, maybe the actor just hurt himself. Hurt himself at the start of the film and got fixed by the end or something. A lot of them don't seem to have actual jobs to do. So no one has no. a job. They just go down and follow the police guy in case something Actually, interesting happens. Gaza has and... a job. He does something with the um, he does maybe crop dusting. Did you get crop Yeah, he flies. Oh. Oh, you looked at the plane? The plane still exists, and the plane is still registered. The small aircraft <laughs> he flies, the Cessna 150, which is one of the very early Cessnas, oh, yeah. is still a genuine plane, and the registration is real, and it's still flying as at today. <laughs> I just wanted to say, in nerdy plainness. Yeah, he does some kind of flying and stuff, which is when the father then comes up and just walks the into the middle of the, the airfield yeah. to have a bit of a bitch session. No, to have a neighbourly chat. It's like, yeah. Why come out here? Then? The father's right on the cusp of being like a used car salesman. I he very just, much have the impression he's in sales. Yeah, he's just Cannon, a his little name bit. Is? What is it? Uh, uh, yeah, I think it's just it's Mister Cannon. Just the, Oscar. Yeah, the car, Oscar, Oscar Cannon. Cannon. Yeah, and he's quoting some kind of numbers to someone over the phone. So mm. either mm. his job is to be a numbers station, or he's in some kind of sales or an accountant, doing or he that. just records numbers occasionally, like <laughs> randomly to be used on all these things. Can I ask a question? Uh-oh. Where are all children of the eighties? Technically, we're children of the 70s. Well, we're children of the 70s who grew up in the 80s. Yes. Do you ever remember your parents sitting down with a ream of bits of paper and a calculator with one of those little printy wheels on it balancing the budget? No. It is so common in the movie. It is. Actually, I do remember my father balancing the checkbook, but that was, well, we didn't have a calculator about that. Was, yeah. That was just writing shit down on a piece of paper. But right? he never had the, the calculator. That's because they're easy to recognise on film for what they are. That's right. That's why architects are so commonly used as a... Because you can carry around the rolls of plans? No, no, no. It positions your actor in a particular location with a very clear and obvious thing they can also be working on a project. Uh-huh. You can send them away very easily. Yes. And you get a very instant recognised. Have a look at the trope architects in film and TV. Mr. It Brady. is amazing how many of them are architects. Yeah. Well, I think it was meant to show that you're financially struggling. Or maybe that's why they've got the giant fish tank and nothing in it. Maybe they had to sell the fish. <laughs> yeah, that, that fish was, tank is as, massive. As Chekhov's guns go, that's pretty fucking full on, isn't it? We'll have a wall of a fish tank <laughs> so he can then see the little bubbly chest on top of it. I realise that we've discussed Neville, the bloke in the boat mm. at the uh, waterhole, and that Neville is dead, and we didn't tie those two things in together whatsoever. So we see Neville and his fishing line twitches, and then there's a, uh, would you say windmill? You wouldn't say windmill. Yeah, windmill. Would you? Wind- yeah. windmill? It's a windmill. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but windmill. an Aussie windmill, that classic. Loud. It's also Midwestern America as well. It's basically on a very thin steel structure, half a dozen or a dozen steel veins. A dodgier and version than you saw in Razorback. In Razorback, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. yeah. So that starts going again. Bubbles start coming from the bottom of the lake and there's clearly something really big in there and the bubbles go really quite high and this bloke makes it to sure and then the boat is his whole little tinny is taken down but he makes it to shore and as it turns out suffers a heart attack we're meant to actually get that so we're the opening sequence uh, are we meant to get that for the, there's no like clutching his heart type thing no there isn't i just thought that was like what the cops speculated well that's the thing because they talk about that a little bit later which is 
And in fact, it was funny because even with the people directly and semi-directly involved in the film, and it's worth mentioning that one of the voices on the director's commentary that's on the Blu-ray was not involved with the film. He's the guy who actually made Not Quite Hollywood. Yeah. So he's kind of cast himself in a bit of an interview role. And he said that when he was watching that, he never tied the fact that these two people were the same because he thinks that the Neville sequence happens pretty much at the same time as the start of the movie. So it's mm. like a little precursor and then you got the main... Uh-huh, uh-huh. The, the credit scene oh, I see, whatever. I see. Yeah. And so he never tied the obviously decayed dead body to Neville the dentist. Yeah. And the director actually says that maybe the, the screenwriter actually says, you know, well, we just worked on the principle that people would assume that it was a bad place to be and people die. Yeah, it didn't matter if... They, exactly. And it didn't matter if they necessarily tied the two together. Mm-hmm. And you could just assume that Neville went back to civilization at Wallaby Lane and carried on being a dentist. <laughs> so he's meant to have a heart attack at that point and die, and then it's a n period of time later. When the three uh, kids, when the three kids Cody, actually Wendy and Jane, find him. And it's interesting because at the very start of the movie, we see something. So these kind of is there or isn't there a monster, tend to kind of do a slow burn on this thing which I was talking about in a couple of other podcasts about let's not see anything on the camera and let's all just film the reaction. So you never know whether there's even anything at all. Is it all just the wind and the noise and stuff? Something clearly comes up from the lake. And it's big. And it's big. And this was something that actually interested me from a point of view of the production because it's – Really clear, and I don't know if it's the HD restoration or not, but you get a pretty – of what you see above the water, you get a very clear look. It's covered in look. seaweed. Why is it in seaweed? Well, it's not just seaweed. It's covered in But bits. why is there seaweed? That's a very good question because there is actually seaweed on the lake. I don't know. Maybe they imported it from the coast, <laughs> from <laughs> down there the river, from the mangroves that the boat comes from. Right. It's quite clearly oh, – all right, I don't say quite clearly to, to me. It seems – clearly made there's bits that are quite obvious to me man-made right yeah sort of rope and whatever yeah this is the thing that i'm not too sure about so first off i recognize it's aimed at kids and it's just something bubbly and oh my god there's something there did we assume back then it could still be a monster with the understanding with like doctor who brain that it will always look made because it's obviously been made it's Uh obviously a monster that someone constructed because set producers had to build it because otherwise they're kind of revealing themselves they're kind of showing their hand before the start of the movie and i guess the movie's meant to run on the concept of is there genuinely a real monster in the lake or not because we follow henry thomas's characters what were childhood callum's thoughts i genuinely wish i could remember and i was trying to i was trying to remember did i think and i think i probably did initially believe there could be a monster in the lake because that's what all monsters back then looked yeah. like because they were all made from bits and bobs. Yeah, I too this time, what, well, I say this time because I watched the first mm. time this time. That was basically the first shot we see and it was also the first shot went, oh, that's some kind of machine. So you, saw, you thought you I, I didn't go off. straight to machine, but yeah. So you thought straight off it could be, it's clearly a machine and a machine in universe or you thought it's just physically a machine... I think I kind of assumed a machine in universe. Okay. I think if I had to guess, I would say that the whoever put it together that particular part just didn't anticipate us seeing 
so readily that it was a piece of mechanical equipment or something obviously constructed that was supposed to be more obscured by weed and scariness than it mm. ended up being. Yeah. The thing it reminded me of as a sort of a, a weird little thing is if you ever get a chance, they and they're actually showing them, I think, on SBS at the moment, they've remastered the original X-Files. Yes. So they're now widescreen. And the digital remastering is fucking amazing. Oh, okay. They have done, a, I don't know what they've done, they have done mm. a great job. But <laughs> it highlights the fact that a lot of things in the original series were intended to be difficult to see. The pilot episode, for example, has a shot in the opening sequence where something comes through the woods and you don't even know whether it's human or not. Yeah. Because of the digital cleanup, it's clearly a person's uh-huh. shape. Yeah. And in actual fact, I think you can almost recognise the face of the character which they bring in later on. And I was wondering about this because it's clearly man-made because obviously we didn't have digital animation back then yeah. to the level that a film like this could afford it anyway. So... Even if they wanted to say this is a real monster, a set builder still needed to make it. Yeah. And so are we still meant to assume that it could be a monster up to the end or by the very fact that we see that it's clearly man-made from the very start? And as you said, if you thought it right off the word go as being in-universe, it's it's man-made, then it's a partial reveal the twist at the end, which, I mean, we've been dancing around it, but as you know, it's a podcast that we don't care too much about spoilers. We never see a Donkajin. What we see is a crane. We see a huge old school steam shovel. If you type donkey engine into Google and hit images, you will see what it is. It's, it's a steam shovel, which was used... Actually, funnily enough, there's an Australian television heritage to a steam shovel. Oh, God. Okay. Because <laughs> a puppet steam shovel was one... Oh, yes. Yeah, one of the main characters on Mr. Squiggle yes. way back in the day, which is kind of bizarre to me because it's, it's crazy that even in the 80s I would have known what the fuck a steam shovel was as a child. Yeah. Yeah. So basically just a, a massive rock-breaking mining thing that runs off steam, funnily enough. But 14-year-old Cody thinks there's a monster down there and is... Well, he's not too sure, and that's why he wants to investigate. So he's the classic... Scientific inquiry. Spirit of scientific inquiry, yep. And the question is, for me, does he realise what it probably is before he does the dive? I think he just doesn't know. Yeah. I think he's open to many... Ideas. Like he's pretty certain by the end when he goes because he's diving, the, but before that because he's seen the bubbling lid. Hang on, does he see the bubbling lid in the fish tank or bubbling does, lid? Yeah. Oh so, yeah, 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 yeah. So the whole concept of where it comes from. So, so okay, massive spoiler warning. Here is the end of the, the film. The thing that's causing people to see a monster is that there is a steam shovel underwater, and it's over the top of granite where there's. Air bubbling up from underneath. And it's slowly in an air, the, over an air pocket. Over an air pocket. And slowly the hulk fills to the point that it becomes buoyant. The whole thing lifts. And I'm, I'm miming this out, but basically the whole thing lifts and it means that the shovely part, which is on the end of an extended arm, just breaks surface. All the bubbles empty and then the whole thing sinks again because all the bubbles are going away. Yeah. And at the, the climax of the film, before Henry Thomas goes diving into the pond... He realises that because he sees in the fish tank the bubbling... Treasure chest. Treasure chest, which is, again, another nod to uh, Finding Nemo, where you've got the treasures and the treasure <laughs> chest lid fills up with air and then it pops open and all the bubbles come out and then it closes again. 
So is he meant to have realised by that point? Well, by the time he makes his little scuba suit. Yeah. So occasionally it- on this podcast we've discussed, you know, trying some of the scientific experiments. We are not trying up Cody's little <laughs> air rig. No, that the, does the, not the look inverted great. fish tank. And, Just uh, put a f- empty fish tank upside down on your head, and, well, put your head in that, and you'll be right, mate. And can I again say props to a small Australian production for doing underwater filming, at least a couple of sequences, clearly with the hero actor. What it was a- in a small neighbour's swimming pool. Mm, yeah. Yeah. But physical cameras <laughs> underneath yeah, and all well. of the rig. I mean, you know, we're not necessarily talking, God, what was that? film uh, the abyss well we're not talking abyss levels of production value or anything but you know just filming underwater is something which was pretty tricky back then so yeah you know props to them for a relatively decent budget modest possibly (laughs) i think he needs to know for sure whatever he thinks Mm, yes so even if he thinks this could be some artifact just left there at some point he needs to know he needs to know is this a machine is it actually a creature for some reason if it is a machine what machine is it how is it rising up of the water yeah he's a man of science these questions must be answered he's adam savage he gets very emotive with gaza over this he really does hey come on where have you been the last few days oh here and there hey listen what you do is your own business but there's a limit and the limit comes when it starts affecting other people well what are you on about cody i can see what you're up to here with your bush pump and i don't like it now, I want you to promise me you'll stay away from that pond. Why? Because I'm your guardian, and I bloody tell you to. Jeez, Gaza. Oh, come on, Cody. How often do I ask you to promise anything? I want you to promise me. I can't do that. You can and you will. When you were my age, and you wanted to do something, and your parents wouldn't let you, because it was too dangerous. Would you have promised him or would you have lied? Hey, you and I have never had to lie to one another. Exactly. That's an interesting point I wanted to talk about. So remember how I was saying that, at least at the start, Henry's acting seemed really flat to me? Mm. And I actually went back to E.T. going, what was different with these two? Why were they such different performances? He spends a lot of E.T. in tears. Oh. It hit me that in that sequence where he argues with Gaz and actually begins crying, that's what Henry Thomas, at least at that age, was good at. So yeah. that sequence, I thought, was done really well. And well, he put that realistic. sequence in himself. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think it's the commentary they talk about the fact that they just weren't getting any energy out of the kids. And I don't know whether it, it, it never sounded like a a problematic production, but it really did sound like one where the actors weren't particularly comfortable with the director and the director mm. wasn't particularly comfortable with the kids, whereas Brian Trenchard-Smith, obviously working on BMX Bandits and others, had worked with kids and was seen as a director that could pull a good performance out of them. I argue that the start probably didn't necessarily suggest that in this movie, but the idea that Henry Thomas is comfortable enough to actually suggest at the young age that he was, let's have a big emotional sequence, and can then basically fucking turn his tears on. Well, it was, um, you know, sometimes kids get angry at their parents, or angry mm. at their carers in this case. But that's Henry's thing. If yes. you see on YouTube, there's actually footage of Henry's audition for E.T., which is talking about, you know, we're going to take your friend away because, you know, wouldn't you want that and everything. And he starts bawling his eyes out. Mm. And then he does that actor thing, which still blows me away, is 
all the way through. He's crying. He's clearly emotional. It's terrible and horrible. And at the end, apparently, Steven Spielberg's voice says, you got the job, kid. And he's smiling and grinning. You know, tears still streaming down his face. It's like, how fuck do actors do that? It's it Oh, some mind. use the tear stick. Uh, yes. <laughs> and some of them actually do need a few minutes after they've done a really emotive yeah. scene like that because they have to bring up some kind of... I'm God only knows what... Well, the examples the commentary says when they're telling... Dorothy to cry because your dog died. Yeah. <laughs> like... Oh, but she was so mistreated in that film was messed up. Yeah. And that's a bit of a running theme through many movies through the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s and 80s as well. But this emotional scene is like, Cody, promise me you won't go down to that lake. I can't promise you. If your parents asked you to do something you didn't want to do, would you promise or would you lie? It's like, Excuse him, this is an actual problem. Yeah. Yeah, that scene didn't land for me. <laughs> so way did for you. And then he said, oh, we'll talk about it later. So he's, we'll talk he's, about it when you've calmed down. Yeah, he's actively not got the promise he wants. Yeah, that's right. He knows the reason his kid won't promise is because his kid still intends to do it. Yeah. Well, not his kid. He also knows his kid tends to just run off and do what yeah. the hell ever at a moment's notice. Well, the cop's there. It's like, where was Cody today? Yesterday? Last night? Yeah. And Andy Gazza says, oh, you know, Cody does his own thing. Mm. And I... It's basically, I'm going to go and jump in this mysterious <laughs> lake anyway. And why, not, why don't we do this together? Mm. We bond. And that's the thing. I think Gazza's character in general, especially when it's played off against Wendy's dad, is meant to be the cool uncle. Yeah, totally. That lets you do your own thing. But, yeah, we're borderline neglect. Well, borderline. We're negligent guardian at this point. Yeah. Especially considering he's still under scrutiny. Apparently he's still being assessed from the point of view of Oh, no, um, it was really dumb. The cop services. said... It was along those lines. It he said, had to fill in a report or something? No, it was like, well, if he's dead, he's not going to live with you then. And I was like... Yeah. It wasn't quite the line, but it's like... That's a little um, harsh. Uh, well, yes, obviously. Uh, mm. this is... Doesn't he... Remember when he goes to the fridge to discover that there's a vast piece of meat that he hasn't missed the first time he's gone for a beer? VB <laughs> again. Cause, cause yeah, oh, with the bongs it, behind With the bongs. The it's, a, it's a real bong. Actually, comment on that one as well. But uh, there's more than one too. Yes. So uh, obviously people in that area are enjoying themselves. But, yeah, but doesn't the policeman says, you know, I still need to, you know, Give the details so all your know, social services can still take him away or something. It's something like he's in a kind of a like a probationary period or something as a parent. Yeah, it doesn't <clears> seem <throat> that this. I let him run around do what the hell ever, riding on train tracks and diving into lakes we know nothing about, which we barely even know where they are. And here is my bong. It's going to run so great to social services. I mean, oh, but the cop just goes over and helps himself to a beer out of his fridge mm. too. Well, there's a police. I can beat him up. <laughs> Just kind of crazy. Yes, there's cool, let your kid, give your kid enough rope to kind of, you know, live life as kids. And actually, I think they do but that. you know more. what enough rope means? I do, yes. <laughs> I don't and know that's, if that's the quite thing. the right. Because they do actually, when they're throwing darts in the police station, and he's like, oh, he reminds me of us when we were our age, you know, with three rifles stuck up on the yeah, wall. Yeah. Yeah, no, yes, we are. It's a very laid-back town they're in. Hmm. But, but, of course, before all of this big final scientific investigation, we have the mystical dreaming sequence. Yes, so we've got to go on search for Charlie Pride. We have our journey. Not the country western singer. Not the country western singer. So, as recommended to him by the casually racist white members of the town, Henry Thomas's character does exactly what he's told, is go and right. talk to the Aboriginals. 
and he starts by talking to a guy outside the dance hall. Yep. Uh, who then... No, he starts with the builder guy. Oh, so he starts yes. with the builder guy. Sorry, that's right. Yep. It's in National Geographic. Sent divers and cameras and all sorts of stuff down, but they still don't know what's in Loch Ness. Just like they don't know what's down in Donkajin Hall. Frog dreaming territory. Ah. Yeah, any of your people still know about that sort of thing? Charlie Pride. Charlie Pride. Yeah, Charlie Pride. The country western singer? <laughs> first mentions talk to now he's the one who brings the, up Charlie, Charlie Pride yeah. yeah but then he can't find him so then he talks to the guy oh the, the conversation with him the conversation That's with the guy weird. in the dance hall was really weird Henry what do you know about Donkajin eats rocks yeah old fella say in the dream time a young fella couldn't be a warrior till he looked at Donkajin if a fella looks at Donkajin and doesn't die, he's a man. You mean you can die just by looking at him? Maybe, maybe not. Anyhow, what's a white boy want to know about Kadaicha? What's Kadaicha? Black fella magic. Can't see him come, can't see him go. Is Donkajin Kadaicha? A lot of things the old fella says is fair dinkum. Some isn't, maybe. You ever hear about a fellow named Charlie Pride? No. Well, if you did know about him, where would he be? Supposed to have lived down by the coast someplace. Don't know anybody that's ever seen him for sure. Some old fellas reckon they've seen him. I don't know, why? Oh, I yeah. don't know him. Well, if you did know him, where would he be? Oh, down the boat. Yeah, <laughs> what the hell was with that? That was super weird. That was so strange. It's with the Pride family hangout. out of the with Charlie. Now um, that you mention it. And then he goes down to the boat and goes on a journey. It looks like a pretty cool journey. It does. So we see... we see So the this Abri- boat is like transport. Yeah. So we see the Aboriginal community in the area, which was a bit heartbreaking to November and I when we were watching it because, A, it was kind of, wow, this seems really insensitively handled, but also this is exactly the kind of environment you would imagine would have been the case at the time, which yes. is this sort of satellite community to the main town itself. One other thing I'll say is... I mean, it's not just Frankston, but it's outside Frankston. Mm. I mean, Lord. And then there appears to be, like, this taxi service, like a water taxi service along the mangroves. And, yeah, and there seems to be this boat that rides along and he catches the... Oh, they use uh, shopping trolleys for mud crabbing. Again, I don't... Are they shopping trolleys? It was totally a shopping trolley. It was a shopping trolley. They even identified as such on the commentary. Oh, do they? Because it's way small. They're crazy oh, small. Shopping trolleys come in different sizes. Oh, okay, all right, cool. Because I know the shape was very shopping trolley, but I'm like, that's far too small to be a shopping trolley. <laughs> I missed that part. So, yeah, so they, they're crabbing and they're doing all sorts of stuff and he gets taken to an incredibly well infrastructure lit pier in the middle of nowhere. Which was a set inside. Yeah. <laughs> but it looks great. Oh, it looks good. It's clearly that kind of overhanging lighting. It's almost like freaking spy movie type sort of misty pier. But I remember thinking at the time, and it, it really struck me in this. This was the manhood quest, though. That, yes. So 100%. he's gone out on his own. He's spoken to these people. He's asking where to get wisdom. Yeah. He follows these people on the trail via mm. the boat out to find 
this. Oh, I, I do love the boat driver in his, was it orange jumper? Mm. Yeah, he's really cool. I really yeah. love that dude. Well, I don't know. He wasn't driving the boat originally. Somebody else was. And then he yeah, took they over. just take turns. Maybe. Must have been the other best stop. Possibly. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, as you say, so this was the test of manhood. And I was a bit concerned initially because when he actually asks Charlie Pride whether or not there really is a Donkajin, Charlie asks him, are you a man? And I was like, oh, God, here we go with gender stuff because it is intrinsic. But it's actually, oh, okay. just, you know, are you grown up? You need to yes. now perform the test of not a boy. Mm. And, yeah, and so he walks across this interestingly lit pier to what looks to be a weird monster from the distance. And he has to dance with the devil. Dance with the devil. And as it turns out up close, it's just a puppet hanging in front of lighting. <laughs> but it's cool. He's passed the test. And then plays with a lightsaber. He does, which is really kind of cool. And I was just remembering that it seemed fake, even in the context of the movie, and recognising that it was a set... The lightning is such a cliche. The sound effects seem so artificial and it all seemed so not real that I was wondering, considering that to a certain extent this is possibly one of the... You think half-dream sequence? No, 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 no. I'm, oh, okay. I'm wondering if, given that it's kind of sort of one of the scarier parts in the movie, you know, with, with oh, okay, yeah. given that it's aimed at kids, is there an intention to make it a little... Not too scary. ...kind of cartoony? I don't think so. Oh, just something that was mentioned in the commentary was like, or mentioned in the commentary or read somewhere else, like, I think kids can um, handle a lot more than you think. Uh, it, it's interesting. His line was, kids can take more suspense and unease than they were given credit for at the time. Oh, now, yeah, now we know the little girls. Well, no, but that's the thing. I've spoken to my brother about the movies we watched as kids. Yeah. Kids' movies were fucked up. Yeah. I remember Steven Spielberg's films with E.T. Your parents are fairly lenient on what they let you watch. And I am talking... Because you watch R-rated movies as kids. Yeah, and I'm specifically talking about the kids' films because, yes, we saw Commando, we saw Rambo, we saw other movies, which are R-rated or were R-rated then, and you look at them now and they're a bit tame, and we've discussed this in the past, and what we get in R-rating then and what we get in R-rating now will be different for different reasons. Sure. And, you know, yeah, there's smoking in this and there's swear words and stuff. But the kids' movies, the, the movies specifically aimed at kids, had some fucked up bits. I mean, think about Artax dying in never-ending story. You know, the horse drowning in the mud, for God's sake. I mean, think about E.T. being taken away. And then bloody heart started with the zapper things on the table and actually the entire body of the character bouncing up and down while Elliot's in the next room fucking spasming at the same time. Shit was fucked up in kids' movies back then. And uh, I know that a couple of the comments on Stranger Things recently has been that there's some pretty dark stuff in there. I think kids were given credit for being able to handle some pretty <laughs> shitty stuff back in the 1980s. I think you're right. I think, though, there was still a, even for the time, that what many an adult would think a child could handle was lower than what a child could. Mm. Okay. I mean, there's other movies like BMX Bandits. That's... Yeah. You know, really friendly, happy films that are just... 
as we said, I mean, that was an episode of the famous five or something kind of stretched out to a feature. And of course, you know, there's different levels of kids' movies, and you're three years or more older than your brother, so it'd be interesting to see Ewan's take on them. I'd be curious about that, whether or not, as a younger brother, he felt. Because we watched all I guess he watched them together. We pretty much watched them all together. I don't Mm. recall the time, you know, when I was specifically allowed to watch something that Ewan, that my brother wasn't. It was all over the place. This is also the 1980s that gave us all the action cartoon shows in which you weren't allowed to mention death or dying. Yeah, yeah. 18. Mm. 18, I believe, <sighs> is, is a trope. They never actually killed anyone. Did anyone even get shot? I think people occasionally got shot in the arm in a way that they covered the blood immediately <laughs> and then could be bandaged. Up. Yeah. But, you know, they you know, jokingly, you know, full There full were shots fighters. from Star Troopers. Star Troopers? You know what Star- I mean. Star Trek. Stormtroopers. Stormtroopers. There we go. Kittens kept me awake all night. (laughs) But there was certainly no blood that I can remember in the original Star Wars. And in fact, actually, funnily enough, literally just as a complete coincidence, today I was watching an interview with Alec Guinness by Parky, and he was interviewing Alec Guinness about this new Star Wars film that's just come out. Wow. And he actually asked him, what's one of the things that attracted you to it? And he said, I just thought it was innocent. It was nice. You know, yes, some people die. But, uh, <laughs> they just fall over and there's no terrible horribleness and it's sweet Which and innocent. Which movie are talking about, though? The original Star Wars. The one where someone gets their arm hacked off bloodily. That yeah, one. yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. one, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, that's right. But so, it's with a lightsaber, isn't it? Cauterized instantly. It's supposed to be, but there's blood everywhere. <laughs> it's actually like a blood. There was a really slow pan, wasn't there? Fuck, I forgot about that. Well, that's my theory down the game. Where is it? <laughs> My name's Cody Walpole. Um, I wanted to talk to you about... Donkey Jim. How'd you know that? Man business. Well, anyhow, um, everybody reckons it... You want to know about spirit business? Like Bunyip, sir? Um, like Dunkerton? Are you a man? I'm a boy. Maybe we find out, eh? Sir? You like to dance? Dance? You like to dance with the devil? I don't understand. First you dance with the devil. Then you find out about Dunkerton. So it might be worth mentioning, the reason that we named this movie 17 different ways is that it was released in Australia under one name, it was released in America under another, it was released UK. Uh, in the UK under another again. Finland? Finland, um, Italy. And the interesting thing, and I'll say this, if you ever get a chance, watch the British release of Crocodile Dundee, there may have been slight tweaks to the movie from one country to the next because they did do that back then. And there's actually a sequence in the Australian release of Crocodile Dundee where Dundee goes into the history of his family getting passed around the oh, as yeah. a kid that was taken out of the British release. I don't know if it was taken out of the American release, sort of demystifying him a little bit. They still mess around between countries on movies. Mm. Steve's list in Captain America the Winter Soldier. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. The list of things he has to check out now he's in the 21st century oh. is different depending what country you're watching uh-huh. in. Oh. Look, a witchetty grub. Ah, oh, it's a nice one. You gonna eat him? Yeah, don't make me bath. Oh, they're good. Tastes like nuts. If you don't eat them, I'll eat them. You will not. He's mine. One thing I do want to say just now, yeah. it's not really a convenient time, that we mentioned... <laughs> 
that the costumer was one of the people who's actually on the commentary. And she, Aphrodite Condos. Yeah, and yep. she gets like... Condos? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. very small amount of actual time. One of the areas that they do talk about is the, they do ask her specifically about the costume. Oh, I found that very interesting. I found it fascinating. She actually talks about this, and I remember actually thinking at the time that one of the things that really struck me about Henry's character in the very opening is the layers. Because, Kellen, this is something you've mentioned in film a bunch of times, like especially when like something's a contemporary show, people are just wearing contemporary clothes. What does a costumer do? I want to highlight not what does a costumer do. They do nothing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm like, literally, what do they do? How do you sit in contemporary time and think, how do I now define a particular character just using what's available? That's kind of blows my mind. But also getting how many copies for things. So Henry's outfit, there were three versions. So there's Henry, there's the stunt double, there's a lot of underwater scenes, mm. and just having to wash and dry them constantly. Mm. There's a little side story about Romeo plus Juliet oh. where the Hawaiian shirts that Leonardo uh-huh. DiCaprio's character wears were actually all the same shirt. They were a single print, and they needed it red for an opening for one of the first scenes, it's a red shirt. Yeah. And so they've got it red and he's wearing the red shirt. And then later on they wanted a blue version of it. So what they actually had was just these sort of six or seven shirts, whatever it was, and they had them out the front of the costuming spot with a whole bunch of felt-tip pens, like kind yeah. of... Yeah. Um, oh, and, and people would just go and colour it a bit more. would colour a, a bit more as they were walking past. You know, if they had a few minutes, they'd try to <laughs> colour these shirts in. It's been very therapeutic. Oh, it must have been fantastic. And costume can be so, you know, seminal to a character. I mean, I joke about the fact that if you put an indie hat on and you stand in the sun and you look at your you silhouette, shadow. you will be Indiana Jones. So it's imp- so costume is so huge. Owning a DeLorean, I occasionally take the DeLorean out. Can I just really quickly interrupt and say one thing, more thing about costume? Oh, no, please, please, please. Yeah, sorry. I never want to interrupt a DeLorean story, but <laughs> in Buffy, when Tara gets shot, mm-hmm. that shirt Willow's wearing, they only have one, and she has to react instantly and cry the minute that she gets... Oh, that it must be when Tara gets blood on her. And they did so many takes of it, not quite getting it right. So they had to, like, rip the shirt off, quickly get the blood out, wash it, dry it, put it back on. She's standing there in a wet shirt. It's like, okay, now cry. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, really? yeah it was really tough. Wow, that's, that's terrible. Okay, DeLorean. No, 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 I was just going to say, yeah. And, I mean, it's easier when you're making props or you're trying to recreate a character's look. It's easy for the people who are making it because they're making it. They're not trying to recreate it. So oh, if sure, they've sure, accidentally sure. Yeah. used some incredibly rare piece of prop material or particular type yeah. of clothing, well, they wouldn't know because they've got whatever. But the Marty McFly jacket, the denim jacket, is actually a custom-made jacket by Wrangler, okay. I think it is, it was made for the movie. So they had to get X amount made. And if you want to replicate it, you have to physically build it yourself from scratch or, you know, buy it from somebody who's made it. It's not a particular type of shoe or a particular type of jean. It's something specific. So it was really interesting to hear a take on costume and talking about the fact that she was saying that Henry Thomas's costume in this film was intended to show his independence. So even though, as we said, he's notionally Gaz's ward, Gaz is about as absent as you can be without physically not being there at all. Um, most of the time he's not. Which he really is. isn't. Yeah. <laughs> and so what Aphrodite did is she built the costume up in layers, starting with a T-shirt, then an overshirt, then the denim jacket, and then the camouflage vest over the top of that, so that not only was it one that the character himself could sort of use bits and pieces as he felt necessary, but they could also layer, depending on 
how they wanted to play out different parts of the film. Yeah. And that's as a bizarre little side thing because I've, I've got an interest in hiking. They talk about layering as a practical tool for when you're hiking. You don't yeah, carry entire changes of outfit. You build up, okay, this is a T-shirt, and then I'll have an overshirt, and then I'll maybe have a jumper, and then if on top of oh, no, a jumper, I'll have like a, a base layer and then a, a layer and then a waterproof layer on top. So, yeah, I found it really fascinating. Yeah, so Henry goes off, does his trial of them being a man, and is then, we assume now allowed to find out about the Donkajin. Is that the case? Donkajin, by the way, being the dreaming word for whatever it is that's lurking at the bottom of the pond. I don't know that we even specified that. God, we're terrible. I don't think Donkajin is a dreaming word. No, oh, in the in universe. Oh, in, in right, film. okay, right. Right, no, yeah, no. As best as I could find frog dreaming as a concept, Donkajin as a concept, they're not. No. Yeah, yeah. There is an interesting little spin on this one that I found interesting which was a comment, almost a throwaway comment made during the commentary, which is that Australia's never made a Bunyip movie. Not a good one. They reckon not one at all. And I'm going to be honest, I can't off the top of my head think of a good Bunyip movie. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a kids animated one. Yeah. So the concept of the Bunyip is that it is a... It's a Sasquatch or... Well, no, that's a Yowie. Okay. So Bunyip is different. Bunyip is a creature that notionally lurks in billabongs. Water, you're right. Bush Tucker Man, uh, Les Hiddens, had an interesting take on something when he actually read a, a tracker's description of a bunyip that they encountered in a billabong as being this huge thing with horns that kind of reared out of the water and made this terrible bellowing noise. Just like Donkajin does. In the story that oh, he talks about, he hints at the idea that it's actually a, a cow, cattle that's been brought over from the UK, sitting three quarters in the water and that because Aboriginal Australians hadn't seen anything quite like it before then, they just encountered this huge bellowing thing with horns in the middle of the Yeah, river. right, okay. The Donkajin, which is interesting in this, is because the name is meant, as we find out with the big reel, that it's a steam shovel, and the steam shovel's uh, brand name is a donkey engine. Or brand a, name? Uh, not brand name. The Folk, not folk name, but yeah. The that's nickname? just what it's called. Nickname? nickname? Yes, why not? Nickname. Yeah, they call it the donkey engine. Yeah. And so that's where the theory of the word comes from. But then if we're at that point now, we get to the end of the film. <laughs> the twist is that at the very, very end, supposedly uh, Cody gets the reveal from Charlie Pride that the Donkajun is real and the frog dreaming is real and that it's all genuine in there. And everything mechanic gets sucked down to pollute the water hole. Everything gets... Well, it's not going to pollute the water hole any further. Well... I took it in the opposite way. I took it that oh, it's basically cleansing. it's a cleansing of that site. That was kind of what I thought, was that the Donkajin actually basically takes it all away and restores the location to be uh, pretty pristine. Jumping back to the Bonyip thing, I've also since read that it wasn't that the local people just went, what the hell is that? Let's call it a Bunyip when they saw the cow. It's that the Bunyip legend already existed and it's possible when they saw the cow, if this story indeed happened, because it's one of those very it fits stories. Yeah. Might have happened, I don't know, but mm. the idea is if this story happens, that they went, that thing in the water is just like what we know of as a bunyip. Let's yeah, let's yeah, say, yeah. oh dear, that's a bunyip. Yeah. It seems to you say, because that was exactly my point. If the theory at the very end of the movie is that, oh my God, frog dreaming is real, there is a donkajin, but the word donkajin came from donkey engine. So what... Order is this meant well, to have happened? I actually really in. like Daria's theory here that, that there was always a donkajin. 
Yeah. Yeah, but that's the thing. If you take it that it's Aboriginal legend that then fits nicely over what then has happened in the quarry, it's a twist that sort of creates holes, plot holes. Well, it's, it's also that if the legend hadn't fit what's happened to quarry, then it wouldn't and we wouldn't be here. It's one of those things where <laughs> yeah. it's one of those things where the same as you ask yourself, isn't it just a coincidence that the main character is filmed as this, this, this and this? But the answer is yes, that's why they're the main character of the film. <laughs> yes. So yeah, that's right. If there wasn't a local legend that fit machines in a watering hole We wouldn't be here. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, true. And I think part of what Charlie Pride is showing him out on the uh romantic lit docks. <laughs> Romantic, atmospherically lit docks. Romantic. Is, I was probably thinking the other sense of romantic. Charlie talks about how, look at that, it's a demon, it's a devil. And he knows full well it's just some stuff hanging up. And it's that the concept of the demon or the devil is real, but it's a matter of how you apply these things to what you see around you and how things around you may fit these ideas. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I like it. Cool. So we talked about this when we were doing the, the review of, uh, not Kindred Spirit, what was, again, terrible with memory, the Next Haunted House. Kin? Next of Kin. That we determined by the end that there definitely wasn't anything mystical happening, that it was all psycho family stuff. Would this be different, though, if any of us actually believed in anything? Well, no, but that's the question, because in this one, do we think any of what's discovered has a mystical bent or is it just the end that we then get the kind of you were pissed off at the end of this film i thought it was unnecessary i don't know why they chose to do it other than the refilling bit the refilling and the twist for the sake of a twist maybe it was for the sake of the spiritual maybe it's keeping it alive Keeping the spiritual alive in the movie, or keeping yeah. the spiritual alive in the keeping the spiritual alive. But in that's the thing. In I mean, world. then it would have been nicer then if they were going to do that. Maybe pepper a few bits of. Okay, all right. Actually, no. You know what? <laughs> there was one thing which really kind of bugged me in the first part of the film, and you know what? If we're talking about it still being spiritual, maybe that actually fits. I got bugged by the fact that the windmill would start blowing. Uh, yeah, me too, but I overruled that in my head by saying the bubbles coming up from under the water were affecting the windmill. But that's the thing. That's as good as I could get in my brain. If you accept that there is a spiritual and that they are keeping the spiritual, then you don't need to explain it. It is mystical. It is magical in that moment. So you can then make a decision. For me, that was a problem. Because I was like, well, hang on, everything else has this rational explanation. It's, it's the Scully versus Mulder thing. Oh, but, I was, well, I they, thinking... they said in the movie that the wind comes down into the yeah. valley, so I assume a windmill is going to react to that because it's in the name. But then... Yeah. <laughs> and yes, that's very well said. <laughs> <laughs> You're just coming out with gems today. But it was... We can just have this whole episode just of your little edits. <laughs> <laughs> but it was all completely in time with every moment that the... Yeah. The bit came up. So that bugged me. And it's like, okay, if you're going to do rational explanation, do rational explanation. Clarify how that happens, yes? So the bottom of the pond is granite. Mm -hmm. And the wind goes all the way through. What if the wind's going underneath as well and pushing the bubbles up, as well as moving the windmill? Well, it has to be getting the air from somewhere. Yeah. No, that works. I had understood it. In my head, I just had there was a permanent build-up of air pockets underneath. But then I'm just like, oh, if the wind comes and gets the windmill, and that could do extra bubbles. Yeah. No, that works. 
But then that's the thing. If we now are attempting to even begin to rationally explain the windmill, then the concept of the last twist being a spiritual twist is kind of lost. It's like, well, if you're going to do that little end sequence of something above and beyond a realisation that's kind of so poorly executed that you need to do it entirely in expository dialogue, then maybe you haven't done a great job then of anchoring the possibility that there is still spiritual. So you think it would just be better without that final scene? Not necessarily. I think what they would... (laughs) I'm confused! What they, to, to me, the, what they needed to have decided is, is it purely a rational explanation? Totally fine. Rational explanation. But, Callum, maybe it's like the world. We will never, ever know. I thought Absolutely. it was the point that we're not going to get a nice handy, this is exactly how it works. No, no, but that's, that's fine. But then there's no other anchor point for the entire rest of the film. There's no realisation. He gets to the end. Everything's explained. It's all yeah. nice and clear. This is what's happened. This is why there's bubbles. This, sorry, sorry. Stop smacking the sorry. table. Sorry. Okay. My goodness, you should see these. Oh, really? All right. Oh, wow. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> so this is my problem. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably the moment you can't go forth about hitting the table. <laughs> so here's my problem. Uh-huh. You go through the whole film and you give it as a full rational explanation. He does the scientific exploration, he uncovers it, and he works out every aspect, every aspect of what we've seen, with the one exception of the windmill. That's the only thing. And again, as you say, you can rationally explain out the windmill if you want to. But then right at the very end, you then suddenly say, but there is a spiritual aspect to it. But there's nothing that you can point out in the rest of the film that suggests there's nothing that wasn't explained if you want that spiritual side of it as well, if you want to say, hey, look, here is something inexplicable, make that a post-hoc realisation. Hell, flashback it if you want. Flashback it to something which didn't get covered by the rest of the if movie. If the dentist died by natural causes, there's no way he would have been positioned like he was. We can't do it in the movie because that's not what they did. I'm say. so confused. No, that's what I'm saying. They didn't do it in the film. Sorry, explain to me. <laughs> They didn't do it in the movie. That's my problem. Right. There's no anchor point to go back and point at anything and say that's a spiritual aspect. Right at the very end, there's a nice solid arc. There's a weird legend. It's all a bit scary. Nobody knows what's going on. All solved by science. Yep. Fine. Uh-huh. But no, 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 no. It's spiritual. There's zero anything else tied through the rest of the film to that. Right. Twist at the end. It's almost like a twist for the sake of a twist. It's almost like at the very, very end, the bad guy opens their eyes without any other explanation of why. And so that's the only bit. It just, I mean, it's not a deal breaker for me. It's a fun film. I enjoyed it. It was fine. <laughs> but it's just, it seemed, it seemed a little hacky. Oh. That's what I'm saying. It's just a bit. You know what a worrying thread to that is? Not exactly what I'm saying, but the possibility of that scene. That if that scene hadn't happened, then. Cody would have been wrong at the start of the movie about frog dreamings, and the rest of the movie says you can't have that. Oh. Okay. I've gone slightly meta with this. No, 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 that's fine. No, and you're right. Tell I mean, that's, this is right. No, 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 no. No, that's good because it, it is important, as if we're saying, if we're talking about, you know, the at, at least an attempt to handle with sensitivity dreaming as a concept and spirituality, but then don't just then blue tack on, oh, but actually spirituality, you know, Frog dreaming is a thing. 
It just yeah. seems almost like an apologist. It was a bit big to be the, what did they call it? The cane in the corner? Is it the cane, cane in the corner? corner? What's that? Oh, what's that one? I'm not sure if I'm familiar with that one. Uh, it's often, somebody's often in the Christmas Carol-esque things. Mm. That someone has some kind of experience that changes them or gives them inspiration or epiphany or all the rest of the things. And you leave the doubt in story that they really encounter various supernatural beings and have visions or whatever, or did they just have a dream which happened to provide them with useful insights, but it was basically from their own mind. Ah. And the cane in the corner is often saying that someone within the experience division, whatever, was possessing some kind of cane. Then at the very end, even though it's been rationally explained away, there's the cane of the character which otherwise doesn't exist sitting in the corner. Oh. Okay, cool. The You wake up and you suddenly realise you have the scar from the dream you had where you got slashed or mm. the one thing that's totally inexplicable. Yeah, and often it's small enough that if you really want, you could just explain away that someone else has a cane like that. Mm. I hurt myself in my sleep and these things happen. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah. No, that's totally awesome. That. Yeah, that's kind of cool. And I think they probably would have... I'm thinking of a couple of episodes of X-Files in particular where that sort of thing sort of happened. There'd be like that one little bit at the very, very end. Well, then how do you explain this or something? Yeah. And often there is a way to explain it, but it, it just <coughs> works better tonally to sort of wink mm. at the camera. Yeah. And I guess maybe that's... Okay, and all right, that would be it. That was the bit that was missing. It was the cane that was missing because... Ready saves the day. We do see we do see Charlie Pride like physically appear out of nowhere, mm-hmm. sort of kind of sort of transmogrifies in, mm-hmm. or whatever the correct word on that is. That Oops. was the only bit that broke it for me. For the you could interpret things two ways, even without actually breaking them. Thing, yeah, yeah, because and him turning in you. Well, yeah, I thought that was figurative, mm. so I didn't think he was really shape-shifting or anything. Mm. Well, no, it was just we didn't really have emus before in the movie. <laughs> I was well, like, no. were you a Tawny Frogmouth? Or... No, that was the thing. He turns Tawny Frogmouth, doesn't he? I thought he turned emu. Did he become both? My theory... Oh, no. Sorry, my theory. I understood he was meant to be the Tawny Frogmouth all the way through. I Wait, did he the... steal somebody's sandwich? Because <laughs> <laughs> he was meant to... My understanding at the very end was that he was the Tawny Frogmouth throughout the... So all the times we sort of flash on that... It's like him well, this watching. Is probably me just being confused, which does happen. No, no, no I it's... freely admit. No, because you could take the two explanation things from the pond refilling, because you could say for the rational thing, the pond refills from some under other underwater channel mm. when various things happen underground. Mm. Oh, I just pictured it as like resetting a puzzle room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or you could say that part of Charlie Pride's role in this is that. He restores things, and you've got the same thing has happened, and you've got two explanations, and they're not they're not contradictory from what we're given. There's mm. nothing in the scene to yeah. say this is or is not what's happening. You no. could even say that different interpretations can be simultaneously correct depending on how you think the spiritual and the rational interact. Yeah. Yeah, okay. No, I'd certainly take that, yeah. So as for him just warping in and out, so you're either left with spiritual or... Cody's having a moment or he just can appear and disappear and well they haven't mentioned that yet. Yeah. I just realised the lamest reason that film could never be made now. Because kids wouldn't be allowed out without a hat. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they could just expand Cody's outfit to include a hat. It's poor people. <laughs> Slightly surprising he doesn't have a ball cap back then. Oh yeah. yeah I'd 
really. I mean, they were trying to highlight how American he was. It was nothing yeah, with the be New cat York, backwards. Yeah, with New York Yankees logo on it or anything like that. But he has also spent an undetermined period of time in Australia too. Yeah, we don't. There's know. some line in there about when he was a kid. Yeah, so I got the impression he lived there for a bit, went away back, lived back in the US. Yeah. When he was a kid, oh, I love the idea that... Oh, yeah, when, like I, when the 14 years old, like, when I was a kid. Like, like, uh, uh-huh. When I was a kid. <laughs> the 14-year-olds do that, so that's <laughs> yeah. fair. Yeah, this is true. No, I heard a six-year-old say something like that, like when I was little. All of that and that weird little deep dive at the end, which I found, I don't know, a bit frustrating. Read the plot synopsis on the Wikipedia page for this. It's really, really weird. It's really weird. Uh, let me see. American boy Cody, whose parents have died, lives in Australia with his guardian, Gazza. Cody is very imaginative, inventive, and inquisitive. And Did they write Gazza with one set or two? They wrote it with one. He builds things in his garage, including a rail bike. Oh, he's actually got his own personal link on Wikipedia. What the hell? Uh, which he uses to get around. Cody comes across some strange events happening in Devil's Knob National Park associated with an Aboriginal myth about frog dreamings and bunyips. So they actually reference bunyips, even though I don't think they're mentioned in the movie, are they? They pop up briefly, but I don't think they lean on it. Mm. The occurrences revolve around a pond where a monster the locals call Donkajin supposedly lives. Another myth explored by the children is the story of the Kadaicha man who acts as a sort of... Oh, that's interesting. Did they mention the Kadaicha man as a... It comes up, name? but I've actually read that summary too, and they do make a bigger deal of Kadaicha in that summary than comes up in the movie. Yeah, who acts as an Australian version of the Boogeyman, as well as a supernatural judge who deals out punishment. Children are told that he punishes any wrongs done according to the laws of the ancient Aborigines, including harm to one another, murder of animals without need for food, and destroying the environment. Did you get any of that from the... That's very no, specific. I think the writer is showing they know what the Kodachi man is. Yeah. yeah. The appearance being most notable according to myth when white men came. The Kodachi man supposedly wanders the countryside specifically at night and wears shoes made of emu feathers in order to cover any tracks. Yeah, I get the feeling that whole paragraph is a deep dive on Kodachi man, which yeah. really wasn't It's covered. if they had a movie set in New York and said, it used to be called New Amsterdam, but... Yeah. <laughs> Very true. After Cody witnesses the centre of the pond erupting in bubbles, he discovers the desiccated body of a homeless man, Neville, in a tent nearby. Homeless. The local police investigate but determine only that Neville likely died of a heart attack. Again, is that mentioned in the movie? What, that he likely died of a heart attack? Yeah. yeah I the, think um, the cop says it. Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. And Cody mentioned again later on, it's one of his weird American-Australians because he keeps saying packed up, which doesn't sound oh, like Oh, right, person. yeah. He also calls Neville a bloke. He does! Suddenly drops bloke in the middle. That did actually stick out. I remember that. Mm. Uh, Cody fashions a makeshift diving suit and proceeds to explore the murky bottom but never comes back up. Thinking that he's drowned, the town's folk decide to drain the pond to recover his body, which is another thing. is like, where the fuck does the water go? The diving team attempts to locate Cody and bring him up. Blah, 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 blah. Mm. Pond is in fact a flooded quarry. Locals manage to get Cody out and to safely dispel the myth of the monster in the pond. The myth of the Kodaicha man is further explored when Cody believes he sees him in a dreamlike state, putting the donkey engine back into the pond. Kodaicha Man is seen as an older Aboriginal man with feather shoes. Film ends with the mystery unfolded and Cody, alongside his friend, safe and sound with the Kodaicha Man and Donkajin still living and active in their minds. That's a very interpretive. Yeah, the writer of this synopsis got a hell of a lot more out of the movie. Not necessarily anything wrong. I wouldn't say there's anything particularly bad, but I wouldn't. But it's, it's very interpretational. A, yeah, if I was summary. writing a summary of the movie, I wouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, they've definitely gone deep on the Kadaicha Man stuff. Hmm. I think it was, this was the article writer's 
way to try to make sense of the various things you were just talking about, and they've kind of written it as yeah, this straightforward fact in the Wikipedia summary. Yeah, this is what I got out of it. And yeah, it's interesting because during the commentary, they actually talk about the fact that Henry Thomas's character is a bit of a Huck Finn down under, which is all just about having the adventures and there's no sort of real spirituality about that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's, uh, it was fine. I had no problem, no major issue with it. It was just, I did feel like the ending, that last little U-turn ending was tacked on. I didn't, didn't think it could, it was really... Yeah. Overly necessary or possibly should have been a bit more explicit. Yeah, that writer just took the interpretation of flat out, it's in Cody's mind this bit. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I don't know. I must admit, I kind of read that bit as being mostly real. Yeah. And again, until he's popping in and out of things, it still fits with my the same things happened. It's how you partake of them, which is important. Yeah, exactly. I don't think for my money... Anything that happened on film is meant to have not happened at the time, up to and including maybe The Vanishing. That was what was so janky to me about that. There was that like, was a weird read, wasn't it? Yeah, but the deep dive on the Kadaicha man is yeah. really kind of strange. Yeah, so that, that character strange. is from a tribe in Central Australia, not Victoria. Oh, that part I didn't read. They might oh, it was a edited that already. Link off. Uh, oh, the Kadaicha man. Well, this was actually what I was saying, because the Kadaicha man's actually talked about in Ball. So the oh. the Kadachi man is a story the boyfriend's telling his or the guy's telling the girlfriend God, boar. just before she cops the boar tusk through the head. God, that's right. Remember, she's, that's he's wonderful. Trying to, trying to scare oh, her with wonderful. the Kadachi no, man. That's terrible. But yes, <laughs> oh, that's right. And your definition of wonderful and mine are very different. I love boar. <laughs> <laughs> Take that razor back. <laughs> yep. Oh, I like razor back better. Sorry. Shootout. <laughs> Only on pay-per-view <laughs> My Uncle Bernie beats your Uncle Bernie Okay, I have one and you don't That's all there is to you I, that's to say, I don't have an Uncle Bernie I know. <laughs> Not Bern Bernie, Bernie. Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> With that kind of weird little janky bit at the end Other than that, fun film that I really enjoyed this movie Yeah Yeah Totally, totally Which fits is... into all the other kids' movies from that era. I'm right up there with E.T. and Goonies. And like I said, the acting was a little bit more stop-start for me. Didn't, it took a little while to get into, but again... That Except for 10-year-old Jane, who is clearly possessed. Yes. Yeah, she's fine. Yeah, she's, she's great. Awesome. She's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I did find, yeah, some of Cody's a bit stilted, especially when he's doing the, giving a lecture... And the townspeople are hanging off his every word. Yes, yeah. my goodness. That bit was really... Like the point where they're about to walk away and he points to the side of the pond and talks about the level. And the cop and says, what do you think it is? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, dude, come on, this is just... But yes, let's defer to the cringy. teenager. Yeah, that, that's the word. They were deferring to him. Yeah. And yes. I like that they were just ignoring the children like in every other movie. But you don't but there need is... to pander to them yeah. excessively. Well, does he outrank Ricketts as that it? Is he yeah. an inspector? <laughs> and it is weird because we've talked about the from a um, from you know exploitation movies before is that you take a well known foreign actor, you insert them into an Australian film as a bit yeah, of a way. And of that's just how exploitation goes. Pretty much. Obligatory American. Obligatory American. And we definitely have this. But it's a bit weird to have the obligatory American as also the primary source of information. <laughs> yeah. In this instance, it's normally you'd be fish out of water yeah, at right. or And even though it is a plausible thing to happen, I felt a bit uncomfortable when the obligatory white American child is lecturing us on how the local indigenous people function. Yeah, that whole... Well, he seemed to be the only person in the entire place that paid attention to the indigenous tales. And that's not completely... Yeah, actually, that's that's 
quite accurate, really, isn't it? It's a bit of it? a concern that they felt the need to bring in, yeah. It's entirely plausible. He reads or he listens or what have you. Well, it's just when it first happens, he suddenly presents as the one who is lecturing all about it. And it is very good that he didn't end up lecturing any of the Indigenous people about oh, it. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Because then we'd feel an awful lot worse. Yes. Actually, you're reminding me of something just this very second as you say that. If you ever read Bill Bryson's book about going through Australia, and it suddenly hit me, the foreigner coming in wouldn't necessarily prioritise learning about dreaming culture over learning about meat pie making, or you'd view the whole thing as this is part of learning about Australia that I'm visiting. Mm. So it is completely feasible that somebody who's from a non-Australian background who doesn't get that filtration system that we have through school of, you know, this is the history, might very well come in and just as quickly absorb Indigenous Australian heritage as much as... If he goes to the library and looks up Australian culture, it's quite... Yeah. It's easy to imagine that he'd find that certainly easier than one would in our Australian education system. But yes, getting lectured on it is a different thing again. Which is partly weird. just his delivery in that half of what he said and does sound a bit I mean, like a lecture. That's what I mean, yeah. in particular that first 20 minutes, 25 minutes, where he's almost mumbling his lines and being very, I don't know whether he's self-conscious as an actor or, or if that's what they I just, yeah, that didn't sit, it felt a bit weird. But again, kids movie, so. Apparently it was floated at one point to have him do an Australian accent and he just yes. did not. Ooh, yes, thank no, God. yeah. Daniel Radcliffe managed it. Australian? Yeah. What movie? Um, Something Boys. Uh, oh, that one. one of the first movies he made after um, after uh, Harry Potter. One of his first big breaks from that. Yeah, I've not seen We it. watched The Swiss Army Man. Oh, yeah. You loved it. <laughs> Don't fucking dial back now. Swiss Army Man was horrible and so fucking funny, and we were in and just the right frame of mind to watch it. It was Hilarious. We were in tears. It, it was, was so ridiculous. Which is insane considering it's largely a string of fart jokes. And I don't think I've ever laughed more at an extended <laughs> climax fart joke that I think I ever have in the past. It was hilarious. Look at it. I'll bet we're the first people ever to come here. Don't be stupid. This is where all the black fellas used to live. Right, Code? No. Blacks never come anywhere near Devil's Knob. Why not? Whole area is full of frog dreamings. Frog droppings. Dreamings. Frog dreamings. Like like sacred sites. They call it the dummy ground. Why don't they come near it? I don't know. Black's got a lot of funny ways. All I know is they'd go 50 miles off course to avoid a frog dreaming. You mean it's like haunted? With black ghosts? Don't know. I've never been here before. Well, now you tell us. I apologize for all the tapping on the table, too. My bad. I'll sit on my hands next time. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd locked you into a centipede's dilemma thing as soon as I'd done that. Yes, a I'm suddenly aware of dilemma. my arms. I'm a centipede's dilemma? What's that? If you could ask a centipede, like, how does it walk? Which of its hundreds of legs does it step on or which order they go in that it'll think about it too hard and we'll won't be able to move? fall over. <laughs> yes, fair. Uh, December Boys. December, December Boys, that's yeah. it. So I did watch clips and I can't remember anything about it now. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else... Like I said, I mean, any anchor point for any of your kind of your classic 80s movies, there's shots over the town like Goonies, there's bike riding like E.T. Have a look at the comparative posters for this movie. Mm. So ones that have the Go Kids looks like the Goonies poster, and there's one that looks like he's holding a lightsaber. Mm. 
Oh, yeah, there's one, I can't remember which title it goes with, but it very much reminds me of the old Star Wars poster with the holding the lightsaber aloft and all the rest. Lightsaber being a light light. in this case. (laughs) (laughs) But one can wield it as a saber and make noises. I wonder whether or not they actually... Because he did make the noise with his mouth, didn't he? A couple of times, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if they actually had to... Well, I don't know. Have the lightsaber noises been copyrighted? I don't know. I hope not. Well, actually, in this day and age with Disney, you can bet Uh, your ass they have like a million times over. They turned down a distribution deal with Disney for this film, and Brian Trenchard Smith thinks that was a very bad idea. Yes, but Mm. it's ended up there now. That's the one. Yeah, that's the quest. Complete with his friend clinging to him. Yeah. And he's really not looking like... Oh, God, not looking like Henry Thomas at all. No, no. He's got Vulcan eyes. Yeah, that's creepy as. Actually, see Wendy. Okay, so this is fucking hilarious for a couple of reasons. So, so this is an image of the poster for the quest. The quest also includes the true story of Eskimo Nell. So this must be some weird double feature. Oh or yeah, I've seen that around oh, okay. when I was trying to get some of the various titles. Right. Because yeah. what I was going to say is. Most of the time, posters will at the very least anchor a point in the film that's real. This does not. Well, also, look at above his head. It's a skull with some yeah. bits of hair on it, and I assume that's meant to represent... But that's the dentist's mouth. Yeah, that's what I mean. There's supposed to represent poor dead Neville, but it makes it look like a demon that is yep. overlooking it, and terrifying. It looks and like in fact, a mentor with the face of Neville. And in fact, there's another skeleton in bits at his feet... That was exactly what I was going to say. There is one skeleton in this movie, that's Neville the Dentist. We have two skeletons on the poster, so Mm -hmm. Neville makes an appearance twice. The helicopter, which makes a short appearance at the end, is the rescue chopper, the old Westpac rescue chopper. Which is apparently quite affordable to do back then. I'm very impressed by that. The Channel 7 Westpac chopper? That appears right at the very end as a rescue chopper is in this, looking to be some kind of weird-ass, at best a Vietnamese-era search chopper, and at worst... Some kind of fucking hunter-killer type thing. Alien, almost. But there are bats which don't make an appearance at all. No. There are no bats in this oh, movie. Oh, all those beautiful critters that were filmed in the opening scenes were all shot at a wildlife sanctuary. In I did like that. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, represent vast areas of the Australian native fauna. So, But even the other one, the quest, the sort of the blue one, yes, there is a point where he kind of arms himself to go down underneath. You need to describe this, it for Okay, so this one is blue. <laughs> this is the blue-backed one. And interestingly, it's actually got the Donkagen in the background giving just enough of a shape to suggest that it could be one or the other. So I reckon that's actually kind of cool. Yeah. But, yeah, this basically just has uh, Henry Thomas's character in the foreground looking like he's out of Mad Max. With a gun like and a fish. Yeah, hunting he's going to go. Yeah, like some movie that suggests he might be uh, sort of Red Dawning or Mad yeah, Maxing yeah, his yeah. way across the countryside. Yeah, so look, you know, yet another exploitation box tick. Let's sell them on something. And as long as they've given us the t- you know, they bought the ticket, then we can show anything else at them. As far as the quest goes, a lot of it is him being told, go talk to someone else. I mean, it was a really slow <laughs> movie, but I think by the end of it, if kids had sat through, I don't think they'd be terribly disappointed. Mm. No, I yeah, don't think so. I think that's just a different paces of films now and then. And as- well, also Australia, we mm. just do a lot of slow burns. We do. Yeah, the actual Frog Dreaming one, which basically has Henry Thomas's character looking off to one side, and the bridge down the bottom right, that's... Eh. Yeah. It's fine. It, it's, it does the job. It does the job. At least there's not bats and a demon skeleton hanging <laughs> over the top that didn't exist. 
And certainly a bit of a nice sorbet for the brain after some of the last few films we've watched. Horror. Oh, God, <laughs> Spade Horror. <laughs> Daria has a new podcast. Yay! Yes, if you really want to hear me talk about something besides Australian films, you can hear me and Ivy talk about Steven Universe episode by episode. Just punching not-so-giant women to your favourite podcatcher. Why is it called that? Because there is a song in Steven Universe called Giant Women. And, and you are not. We are not giants. <laughs> I, gather I mean, they might be giants, but you're not a giant. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, what do we reckon? Do we have about? a score? Yeah. So, I don't know. I reckon, certainly in the grand scheme of exploitation movies, I'd give this a solid four recklessly dangerous rail bikes out of five. Yeah. I was going to say four out of three. Four out of three? Yeah. I'm not comfortable making actual judgments. <laughs> Right, so you think this is the best thing ever? Well, no, seven out of three is obviously better than four out of three, Callum. Keep up. What was I thinking? I know. You mm. weren't. You just weren't. And I was happy to give it three and a half fish bowls. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I've been Daria. I'm still Callum. And I'm probably November. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to November Callum and Daria on Podsploitation. You can find the show on your podcatcher of choice. Contact us on Facebook, on Twitter, or Instagram as at Podsploitation, or by email to podsploitation at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, donations can be made at paypal.me slash podsploitation. Theme music is Creation Time by Kilo Cats. Find and purchase their work at www.musicbrowse.de. All other material used is for review or illustration only. No claim or infringement is intended, and it remains the copyright of their respective holders. No donkagens were harmed in the making of this podcast. Potsploitation is a moment of mayhem production. Actually, what? what I'm noticing is that there is oh, a quest, the quest trailer. Could, okay. could, should we? I'm curious. It's Green Bank, so they don't have umbrellas in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you loved him in E.T. Now Henry Thomas is back as Cody Walpole. There's no break! Mm-hmm. So this could be exactly the same. Looks like they're exactly the same trailer. Certainly the start's the same. What is that little vehicle? Oh, it's a little diesel thing. dreaming. What do you know about a pond five miles east of Devil's Mouth? No. Okay, it's the same trailer. Do you believe in monsters? Some for 20 years. I was married. Oh my god. He was a really cool character. Then he has he that, that line as yeah. just the one yeah. thing he's known for here. I did like You the... can tell he does narration. Yeah. <laughs> And there was actually, he reminds me very much of a friend of ours, Pat Gallagher, who's been in a few things. He's basically just the respectable beard. Um, he makes me think of Bill Bryson. Yeah. If, like, Bill Bryson was your neighbour up the street. Yeah. The respectable beard. You need one in every film. You don't have the respectable beard. The respectable beard sounds like a pub. I would definitely buy a pint of the respectable beard. I don't know if I want to go to the respectable version. No, it probably becomes a di- the, unres- the disrespectable version after disrespectable. Disrespectable? Unrespectable? Unrespectable? Oh, there you go. Whatever yeah. it is, we were talking over you. Um, the voiceover still said The Legend of Frog Dreaming, but the quest title. Oh, oh, all right. I wonder whether somebody might have actually just stuck the quest yeah, image at the end. Sorry. <laughs>